Hi, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. As most of you listening are probably aware, Dewey Decibel is a product of American Libraries magazine, which itself is the magazine of the American Library Association. However, despite these names, our interests don't lie exclusively within U.S. borders. We always have our sights set globally, as is most all the library world. In fact, as we're releasing this episode at the end of August, the 2019 IFLA World Library and Information Congress and Assembly, where hundreds of library professionals from around the world gather to learn and share ideas, is wrapping up in Athens, Greece. So, in that spirit, today on the Dewey Decibel Podcast, we're featuring conversations that stretch beyond our borders. First, American Library Senior Editor George Eberhardt speaks with Nigerian-American science fiction author Nettie Okorafor about how her heritage influences her work and more. Then I speak with librarians from two Canadian libraries that won ALA Presidential Citations for Innovative International Library Projects this year. But first, a word from a sponsor. A library card is the first step toward lifelong learning. Today's libraries provide more than just books. From story times, family game nights, and cooking classes, to opportunities to borrow audiobooks and museum passes, there's something for everyone at the library. September is Library Card Sign-Up Month, the perfect time to explore what your library has to offer. Visit your library or ilovelibraries.org today. This is a message from the American Library Association. Nadia Korofor is an award-winning novelist of African-based science fiction, fantasy, and magical realism for children and adults. Born in the U.S. to Nigerian parents, she weaves African culture into her settings, characters, and stories to create stunning African futurist novels like Who Fears Death, Lagoon, and The Book of Phoenix, and stories for comic books like Marvel's Black Panther, and more. American Library Senior Editor George Eberhardt spoke with Nettie at the 2019 ALA Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. this past June to discuss her work. You've described yourself as an African futurist. Is that genre something more than just science fiction or fantasy set in Africa? Um, I would say that... Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's all those things, but it's also, and, and the purpose of the label is to acknowledge the, an aspect of it that I think gets ignored, which is that um, African futurism is rooted deeply in African culture, um, folklore, all of that, and that part of it is, is blended inextricably with the science fictional aspects of it, if that makes sense. So when it's, when it's blended like that, it makes something new. It makes something, um, something that is, I do consider it science fiction, but it's something in and of itself. Yeah. Has the Nigerian Civil War been an influence in your life? Oh yeah, very much so. Um, the Biafran Civil War um, was the reason why I was born here, because my parents came here in 1969 for school, and when they finished school they planned to go back, but the, the Biafran Civil War happened and they lost 
lost contact with everybody and were not able to go back. So um, I think every, every Nigerian family has, deals with the ghost of the Civil War in some way, no matter what side they're dealing with, whatever. But um, there's a ghost that haunts all of us. And, and that, that is definitely true for my family. I've grown up hearing the stories. I've grown up hearing um, the, you know, what people had to do. My, my mom's side of the family had to flee the North when they were um, killing Igbos, because my parents are Igbo. And, you know, I've grown up hearing the stories. So, and this was even before I became a writer. So when I became a writer, those stories naturally were one, very important to me, but two, something that I wanted to explore and discuss in various ways that I wasn't able to do just as a, just as a person. So, so yeah, very much so. How many times have you visited Africa? I have lost count. <laughs> what other African countries have you been to besides Nigeria? How about Wulugu in Ghana? Yeah, but mainly Nigeria. I visited, um, let's see, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa a few times, Senegal. Yeah, I think those are the ones. Ghana? Yeah. Ghana, not yet. Ghana, I need to get to, I have not been to, no, not yet, and I need to, because I want to, there's a festival called, I think it's the Chale Wote Festival that I need to go to. So, yeah, that is, Accra is very high on my list, definitely. You have two master's degrees and a PhD. Have academic libraries influenced your writings? Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, ah, a lot of, okay, so, so Zara the Windseeker, um, the Shadow Speaker and the first of the Akata books, those were all written while I was working on my master's in literature and my PhD in literature. And um, the, w during those times, I discovered university libraries and have not fallen out of love with them. I am in love with university libraries and, and libraries as a whole. I started reading in the library, so libraries are very important. To, they're, it's not just that they're important to me, they're magical places to me. You know, they're places of energy, they're places of discovery, they're places of adventure to me. So that's how they've always been. So, so yeah, um, during my PhD, the, I discovered university libraries because all I knew before that were public libraries. University libraries are haunted in a different way. You know, there, there are these dark areas where, where you have these stacks of old, old forgotten um, books and journals and research that you just go in there, you just pull something out, you'll just find something and discover something. So like I was going through all that during my uh, master's and PhD, just discovering those places when I was supposed to be studying, but that's all right, I did the studying as well. Um, and so when I, when I started writing, those naturally you know, found their way into the stories that I was that I was writing. So, like Zara the Windseeker, there's a there's a library that was I can't even go into it, but there's a library that's grown from a plant that was struck by lightning and it's got a see-through. Yeah, there's an important library in Zara the Windseeker, my first book, and then in the Akata books, the library is a focal point of all of the the um, the government and the p people of power um, and leadership in this magical community. You know, and there's a reason for that. It's because of like being around libraries so much. Libraries are a very big part of my stories. Where do you get your inspiration for technological trends or biotech ideas? Everywhere. It's like, um, gosh, it's for example, like I, I was just coming through the LaGuardia Airport, and they have. 
they're like Roombas, like giant Roombas, and they're security robots that are that are going around the airport, you know, now. So it's it's and when I came off the airplane, I didn't expect to see those, but I saw them, and so like I'm fascinated by that idea of this, and they're like inflatable, and um, because my daughter is a very interesting person, the first thing she did when she saw one was follow it and give it a little kick to see what it does. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, seeing things like that inspire me. So, like, technology is everywhere, and in a lot of ways, especially these days, it manifests itself in very interesting, unique, sometimes bizarre ways. So, like, I, I don't even have to, like, look very far for inspiration. I just go outside my door, and there's always something. So it's easy, you know, it's, it's, finding inspiration is not a difficult thing for me. How did you get started writing comics? Um, there was a... An editor for a, I can't remember if it was DC, it might have been DC, he, he had an editor for DC, um, who, who knew me and was following my work, and he looked at my work and was like, you know, Nettie, I think you'd be good at writing comics. It's just the way that you tell stories is conducive for writing comics. And he, this was back in 2011, I think it was. So it was a, it was a while ago. And so eventually he um, kind of, he, uh, he came to me and was like, would you like to write, uh, do a short story um, in this comics anthology for DC? And that was the first one that I did. And so I said yes, and I'm always interested in doing different types of writing and learning different types of writing. And also I love comics, <laughs> so there was that. Um, and he was right. It was like a natural, uh, it was a natural fit. It was an easy fit. It was, there was something about writing comics where the transition from writing from writing novels to comics was smooth. For some writers, it's not, but for me, it was very smooth and natural. It has to do with the way that I see stories and and the the way that I can be. I'm very versatile. Like I, I do all kinds of writing, so I can switch it up pretty easily. So yeah, that was how it started. When you write for Marvel and the Wakanda universe, are you constrained in any way with plot or characters? Um, mostly not. Mostly. Oddly enough, um, Marvel has let me do about 95% of whatever I wanted to do, which has been really awesome. Um, this, the storylines were storylines that I came up with. Um, most of the ideas that I had for like just various things that happened with the characters or things that I came up with. And the only time that there were constraints were when, like, um, there was with one particular character who I will not mention, but I took it far and I knew I was taking it. I knew I was taking that character far and I was just testing the boundaries and they're like, yeah, you probably need to scale that back. But, but most of the things that I, um, most of my ideas, I was able to execute. And I mean, there were times where it did feel a little constrictive in that I'm writing within a universe, like this huge universe that has this huge history and I have to be cognizant of all the different storylines. That was very difficult, but um, you know, that's, that's the nature of writing within something like that. But other than that, not really. Were Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart or Nadine Gordimer's July's People and Influence on your writing? Um, mostly, I, I've read Nadine Gordimer, um, Chinua Achebe, huge influence. Uh, Things Fall Apart, I've read that many, 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 many times. Like, so many times that it's just in, it's in my literary DNA, so it naturally comes out. Um, and also, me being Igbo, like, that's the story of, of, um, when things fell apart, like literally, it's it's a it's a really significant story being uh, 
being, it's a significant story as a whole, but being Igbo and knowing like exactly how it went down and, and how accurate that book was is, um, is another level to it. So it's, it's a really special book. So I would say that more so things fall apart. What other writers have influenced you? Um, African writers or just writers in general? Um, African writers, I would say um, Buchi Amichita, who's an, another Nigerian writer, um, Ngugi Wathiango, who's a Kenyan writer, um, Wole Shoyinka, of course, Nigerian writer, and there's one more, um, Nawal Al-Saidawi. She wrote a book called Woman at Point Zero, which is a highly influenced uh, who Fears Death, very much. And she actually blurred Who Fears Death, which I still can't believe that actually happened. But she's an Egyptian writer. That book is epic. It's very small. It's, but it's just, it's an incredible, like, incredible moving book. Um, in, in terms of authors uh, in general, Stephen King. <laughs> I know that's surprising to say, but Stephen King, I gotta say that. He was the, he was the, the writer who I feel introduced me to storytelling, like the level, what storytelling can possibly do. Because I was reading Stephen King when I was very young. I read his book, It, when I was 12, which I shouldn't have done, but I did that. It was great and scary and terrifying, but it showed me something about storytelling that was really powerful. And then also Octavia Butler, um, whose birthday was just yesterday. I always celebrate that. Um, African-American science fiction writer, probably one of the best writers I've ever read in general. Uh, her work, Definitely, her work and her existing influenced me in so many, in so many ways. ALA Job List is the award-winning source for jobs in library science and technology. If you're looking for a new job or an employer who wants to advertise a job opening, Job List has you covered. Job seekers can refine and filter searches by position type, employer, location, post resumes, and automate alerts to never miss a posting. Employers can rest easy knowing that ALA reaches the engaged professionals that they want to hire. It also simplifies recruiting by offering flat rate pricing, discounted multi-ad packages, and enhanced postings for increased visibility. ALA Job List. It's where job seekers and employers get results. Visit joblist.ala.org for more information or to begin your search today. Get on the list. The ALA Presidential Citations for Innovative International Library Projects are awarded each year to libraries from around the world whose services create positive change, demonstrate sustainability, and provide a model for others. There were four recipients of the 2019 prize, and I was lucky enough to speak with librarians from two of the winning libraries, each of whom were recognized for tech initiatives. First, I speak with Jonathan Hodge, Digital Literacy Service Lead at Toronto Public Library about the library's decision to offer the anonymous Tor web browser on its public computers. And then I talk with Mark Williams, Chief Librarian and CEO of Milton Public Library in Milton, Ontario, about Quest Milton, a patron gaming app created by the library using open source code. Jonathan, mm -hmm. thanks for joining us today on the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Of course. My pleasure. 
the Toronto Public Library's uh, installation of Tor browsers, it's, it's been lauded. You, you won the ALA presidential citation this year um, for that effort. And you're, you're the first, Toronto Public Library is the first Canadian library, Canadian public library to offer this service. And um, I wonder why, what was the impetus behind this decision to, to offer the Tor browsers? And why did you decide to do that? And why was it important for you to do that? Um, public libraries have always uh, protected intellectual freedom and sort of stood on guard for intellectual freedom, and that concept has sort of evolved over the decades. And I think today, in the wake of Edward Snowden's revelations about government mass surveillance and the, uh, the consequent discoveries around how our social media is tracking everything we do and how our lives online are very much um, commodified, I think that standing for intellectual freedom actually entails technological solutions as well as policy and training. Um, and the strongest um, consumer available free technology for securing your or hide it, um, making your work online private is Tor Browser. And as such, it's come in for a fair amount of unfair political baggage. And so I wanted to center Tor in a larger project around making the library a place where users could find advice and guidance and support on how to secure uh, their online lives and make their online lives more private. Now, you, you had just mentioned uh, some of the political baggage that comes along with Tor. Um, what were, the, were there any concerns? I know that, that there are concerns with some people with Tor browsers about how it uh, uh, can be used for nefarious means, you know, accessing the dark web, et cetera, et cetera. Um, were there any concerns that you heard from um, others at the library system or, 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 or the community and patrons about uh, implementing a Tor browser? Um, we had no concerns from the public. Uh, when we launched the project, we had a couple of sort of misinformed um, conspiracy kind of smear-mongering stuff come over mm -hmm. our Twitter feed. Um, and I think the library is a great, the public library is a great place to actually counter some of that misinformation on a kind of digital literacy front. Um, internally, we did a lot of internal consultation. Um, we did consultation with uh, a couple of American li public libraries that have rolled it out uh, around their experience. We did consultation with our IT department around managing the technical side of it. Uh, we did consultation with stakeholder relations internally. Um, we did a fair bit of, of training of the staff at the pilot location and opportunities for them to give feedback um, because I was quite familiar with the kind of for lack of a better word, the silliness um, that you mm -hmm. find online around these sorts of things. So there's a great deal of innuendo, um, you know, and because of technology, I mean, information technology is, is there's a hard, it's a, there's a high barrier to entry to understanding this stuff. And so you end up in a position where you just have, in many cases, you just kind of have to, quote, trust the people talking about it. Um, and actually at our launch, we had Tor Project's co-founder, Roger Dingledine, speak and I had specifically addressed things like trust models um, with the panel that he was on. We had a panel of, of information security folks um, discussing some of these issues. And it was a useful exchange around how you build secure products or private products, but you still work in a marketplace. Um, and so you need to pay your developers. You need to generate revenue. And so mm -hmm. how do you do that as a business and, or in the case of Tor Projects uh, as a nonprofit or a charity? Um, and so that was a rich discussion. Um, and I think that, again, the library is a place where you can have those sorts of discussions. Um, you know, uh, and I think that we, 
you know, there's thinkers much greater than I have coined the phrase, when you want peace, prepare for war. And it's a certain, it's got a certain validity around risk assessment is that you spin out these scenarios and then you come up with ways to mitigate them should they come up. They almost never come up, but if they do, you at least know you're prepared. And surprise, surprise, we did a lot of this work in consultation and um, we got our entire executive on board with this long before we launched. Uh, we included a consultation with the Toronto Police Service on the recommendation of one of our American counterparts, um, and that was really, really fruitful. Uh, and then, uh, and then when we launched, we got nothing but positive responses. There's another aspect to to what you won the Presidential Citation Award for. It was the lockdown your digital privacy program that you mm-hmm. offered. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit more about that? Because from what I've read about, it, it sounds uh, really fascinating. Sure. Um, when we when we kicked off this whole digital privacy initiative um, in the fall of 2016, it was very much positioning as this is a place where you can go to find bias-free guidance on this complicated issue. Um, and so the, the centerpiece of that, uh, like we did a couple of marquee public events where we could get into some of the, the policy and those sorts of issues. And we did this training. I wrote a, a, a sort of public education course, which is designed to take place over four successive evenings. So you get a group of people together every Thursday night for a month kind of thing. And the course starts off with kind of foundational digital hygiene concepts, like keep your computers up to date, and here's how you identify if your computer's infected with malware. Um, and the bulk of it was around generating good, strong passwords. So we do a diceware demonstration and have people generate their own strong passwords. We talk about password managers. And so then we grow into week two around considerations online, what, what you should say and what you shouldn't on social media and why, which gets a little more sort of digital literacy or media literacy around the implications of who can see it and that kind of stuff. And then we also talked about how to enhance a conventional browser, what plugins are available that can help stop online tracking and that kind of stuff. And then week three, we get into anonymity. So we talk about proxies and VPNs, and we do a Tor demo. Um, and it's at that point where we can say, you know, we actually provide Tor browser for the public to use. If you want to use it on one of our computers, you can go to this location and blah, blah, blah. And then week four, by the time you're in week four, you've gone, you've gone through several weeks with the same group of people. And so they'll bring up all sorts of questions they have that aren't necessarily related to what you're going to talk about that evening, which week four I dedicated to encrypted communications. Um, so messaging, voice over IP, um, and then encrypted OSs and some stuff about mobile device security. Um, and then if we had time, I'd do a demonstration of the Tails operating system. Um, which is an offshoot of it uses Tor functionality um, built by the Guardian project, and it's an operating system that runs off a USB stick, and so it leaves no trace on your computer, on your hardware of what you've done on that in that environment, and all of your network connections through Tails are made over the Tor network, so you get that sort of robust anonymity protection. Um, and so the idea was to go from the sort of basic through the intermediate into a sort of more advanced um, kind of tools and techniques. And throughout the whole thing, we talk about threat assessment or risk assessment or threat modeling as a way to think about one's own personal digital security and privacy issues. And then they can they can figure out where they sit on that stuff and what they're comfortable using. Um, and so the approach proved wildly successful. We've run that program in 30 locations over the last two years. We've had over a 1,000 participants. Um, oh, wow. And that's the sort of program that a public librarian can do. Right? It doesn't need any other department. You don't need IT to support you doing it because it was done on our public infrastructure. Um, I mean, doing the tour demo took a bit of 
we had to, to, to do a bit of fiddling to be able to, to do that. Uh, but what we'd mm -hmm. often do is have the user download the package themselves, and then we'd walk them through the install, and then they could uninstall it if they didn't want to use it. Um, so it gets a digital literacy. It gets at some of the landscape of this stuff. It gives us a chance to talk about other things around internet technology, and you know, and so that proved really successful. And then combine that with the other events, you know, the technology pilot was very much a sort of if we're going to talk the talk, we should walk the walk. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it's a way to say, you know, if you have concerns or issues, why don't you come in and try it at the library instead of on your own device, right? And you can talk to library staff about it and. You know, you can see how easy it is to use, right? And that's the other thing to point out, I think, about Tor Browser, and one of the reasons why we wanted to center it is because you really don't need to be technically sophisticated. It's a browser. It's just like every other browser. You can just open it and use it and enjoy all of its built-in protections. Now, do you um, – you've, you've, you've mentioned a few things uh, in our conversation thus far, but do you have any other tips or words of advice for other libraries, either, either in Canada or – U.S. or actually, I should say worldwide, because we we have a worldwide audience. Uh, do you have any tips for any libraries looking to to implement a similar program, either either something like lock down your digital privacy or just implementing Tor browsers themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you're going to push out Tor on a public computing infrastructure, it requires some digital literacy supports. So we produced a, a frequently asked questions document for the public which is a little four-page overleaf that our marketing department designed for us nicely, and we got printed on glossy paper. And So we have that in the location so that if a person is like, well, what is this thing, or why does the performance, why is it so much slower, why, does Java, why is JavaScript disabled, this website seems broken when I use it on Tor, but it isn't when I'm on Chrome, so I'm going to use it on Chrome. Well, you give them a little flyer they can read about what Tor is, what it does, why we have it, and what the trade-offs are, then they can make an informed decision. And so their, mm -hmm. their experience with it is contextualized by some digital literacy education. And I think that, so I think that we shouldn't be pushing out these sorts of secure tools without some contextualizing discussion. And that can be in the form of a leaflet, it can be in the form of a class, it can be in, like there's a variety of vectors through which a public library could do that stuff. Um, but that would be one, one caveat. And I think the other one is, uh, libraries are a real, are a great place to get into these sorts of discussions. And I think that uh, that a lot of these discussions, particularly on information security, they tend to present um, logistical barriers or financial barriers or, or sort of, for lack of a better, social or cultural barriers, because they're all like hacktivists. And, and it's just it's not necessarily a welcoming space to, to Granny Louise, who just has a question about her online account, whereas the library yeah. is a welcoming space. And so that, <laughs> that demystifying role you, you uh, talked about earlier is very much the case. Um, is that we can provide an opening, a welcome space, and we don't have any skin in the game. And this gets back to the trust issue, right? Is that how do you trust this vendor over that vendor? And the, a public library can have a discussion about what they're, why they're positioning the business this way and what the compromises are. And they can tell you, you can, you can have a discussion around, well, this group's a nonprofit, but they get money from the government. What are the contradictions there? And that gets into a more sort of literacy, information literacy stuff. And I think that's where people can make effective decisions. Um, and so I see the, the, the library as a place to do that stuff. And I think public librarians should just kind of take the bull by the horns. You don't have to know everything. First time I ran one of these classes, I didn't know the answers to half the questions the audience raised. <laughs> I mean, once you run the well, class a few times, you start seeing the, the, the questions recurring. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I, I mean, the other piece would simply be to be honest. 
right, is that not all of us use, I don't use Tor all the time. I use it for specific tasks. Um, I use it in specific instances. And I'm candid about that with the public. Yeah, this and is I think actually really, fascinating. Yeah, like it's, and, it, and there's not a whole, and I guess the other thing is that the public has really appreciated this. Like the feedback we've got is universally positive. We haven't had people write us letters denouncing us. We haven't had people say that we're aiding and abetting criminals and pornographers, none of that. And those are all standard insults hurled at anyone using private and secure technology. Yeah. Or comes in for the worst of it because they're they're the, one of the most well-known ones. You know, they got a big bump up when Edward Snowden revealed that he used it um, and that part of the, his, the cache of documents that the – were released around his revelations, included a PowerPoint deck from the NSA that talked about how Tor was now impossible to break. It gave the NSA spies a huge headache because they, whenever anyone used Tor, they really couldn't see what they were doing. So that, to me, it means that Tor's doing something right, right? Yeah. If, a, if, a, if a nation state actor with unlimited budgets can't see what you're doing, that means the technology works. Mark, welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, now, Mark, you um, at Milton Public Library, you received the ALA Presidential Citation this year for the Quest Milton app, gaming app that uh, that <clears throat> the library developed. And uh, for for me, before we get, get, get going here, where, where you start, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the app? Like, how does how does the game work? It's a gaming app. How does the game work? Can you walk us through uh, the process? Essentially, um, there's an overarching game or an overarching app, and then underneath the main app, there are four sub-games. Um, and I'll come on to how those mini-games or those sub-games are released in, in a moment. But the overarching app is essentially a geocaching game, right? So as you go through the town, there are pins that are located around the town. Um, and as you collect those pins, each pin is worth a relatively small amount of points. And the whole purpose of the game or the, the app is that you are essentially collecting points that you can redeem in one of the partner's services or one of the partner entities or organizations, I guess. So um, as you engage with one of the partners, then clearly you, you access more points. And then as you're accessing the service provided by each of the partners, each partner has its own mini-game, and each mini-game is released for 24 hours after you've um, interacted with one of the service providers. So, for instance, um, if you're walking around the town of Milton and you walk to Milton Public Library, you'll be able to collect a number of um, low, low uh, points uh, through the pins. Um, as you get to Milton Public Library and then you borrow a book, you can then actually um, access a whole host of points through the act of borrowing the book, but then the app releases the mini-game, and the game then allows you to accrue a whole set of additional points with a view to being able to translate those points into a monetary value. So for the Milton Public Library, the mini-game is a, a memory game whereby you have um, a number of book covers, and uh, you have to match three corresponding uh, book covers by color, and you have to remember where each of them is as they um, turn back over, I guess. And then the more that you, the longer you play the game, the harder it gets in terms of multipliers, so that 
it starts off with remembering three of the same color and then, you know, you keep going until you can't remember and then you start back at the beginning um, for the period of the 24 hours. Really, um, the intent behind the games was to encourage uh, game or app users to engage with the services in ways that perhaps they wouldn't normally engage with the service. Um, and so the key driver for me was making sure that anyone that accessed the app had to have a Milton Public Library card. So when we were developing the, the app right from the get-go, all of the partners were fully on board with the, the notion that in order to um, play or engage with the app, you have to have the Milton Public Library card and you have to use that each time you log in. So it, it, it is essentially counting as um, an active use of the Milton Public Library card each time somebody is engaging with the app. And how did this um, this app come to be? Like, whose idea was it initially? I know there there are multiple stakeholders throughout this, the, the town of Milton, um, but who was who who had the the initial genesis, the initial idea to 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 do this app? Okay, so that was me, um, and essentially oh. it stems it, it stems from the fact that um, back in 2016, um, the provincial government here in Ontario were. Um, actively encouraging all of the municipalities to come up with opportunities to make municipal facilities true community hubs, right? And I don't want to get drawn into what that actually meant in, in too much detail, but, but the primary driver behind that was to ensure that um, we were working more collaboratively as municipalities with a view to getting more and more people coming into the municipality um, environment or the municipal environment and accessing the services from a one-stop shop, if you like, right? So we took that idea and we ran with it through a virtual um, realm. And so I started thinking, you know, we, we're doing all of this stuff around encouraging people to engage with our physical, but how do we encourage people to engage with the physical by using the virtual? So then it was just a, it was just a, a sort of seed of thought that, that germinated and then um, the provincial government was making grants available to anyone that could interpret uh, the, the, the creation of a community hub in, in, an, in an innovative way, I guess. And so um, we applied for um, a grant through the Ontario Libraries Capacity Fund Innovation Stream. And, and of course, we ended up getting the grant, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it now. But the grant allowed us to and bring in game developers in order to interpret my idea and and um, make that become a reality because I'm not a gamer. I don't engage with games. I wouldn't know where to begin in terms of bringing it to life. But um, the grant allowed us to employ two game developers to come in and translate the the, the idea into, into a reality, I guess. And um, what is... Uh the patron response has been... Yeah, no, it's been phenomenal because um, what, what the game developers were telling us when we were working with them was that, um, you know, this is this is a unique game or a unique app, but if they were trying to draw parallels with other um, games, gaming apps that they were familiar with, they were looking at um, Pokemon Go, and they were saying that the retention rate with, with that was less than 1%, and that was deemed to be a phenomenally successful app. So they were telling us to aim for, or if we achieved anything more than a 1% retention rate, that we should deem that as a success. We're actually, we're actually um, achieving around a 60%, that's 60% uh, retention sure. rate. And so what, ha what that means is every month we're having around 100 people download it, and around 60 people each month are coming back 
um, of those handheld equipment. So, you know, we've, we've got thousands of people using the app, but the, 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 the response to it has been overwhelmingly positive. And, um, you know, everyone that is using it, uh, like our, our intent behind it was really to try and reach out to um, teams that weren't engaging with the app. But what we're finding is that um, it's increasingly popular or the, 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 the highest level of usage comes from families who are engaging with it as a family unit. So the parents have downloaded the app and then they're working with their kids to actually um, you know, engage with the games and, and build up their, their points, I guess. For any of our listeners out there who might be intrigued by by this concept and want to do something similar for for their community and their library. Do you have any yeah. tips for them or any, any where should they start? Um, okay, well, I, I think, you know, although we got the, the grant to be able to do it, it's, it's not that expensive. So, you know, as long as you can get a game developer engaged early on in the process, that's the, the, the biggest battle that you need to overcome. And in fact, we're, we're making the code of our app freely available to any public library that wants to replicate. So, so then the only issue becomes employing the game, um, the artist, and I, I guess that was my um, naivety in that um, when we started the ball rolling, I assumed that because the game designer was called a game designer, that they designed all aspects of the game, including the artwork. And it was early on in the process that I realized, actually, no, that's not the case. The game designers just design all of the background functions, the code and all of the stuff that game designers do. And so we had to um, hurriedly find... Um, an artist that could work with them to bring their code to life. And so we were able, we were incredibly fortunate that we have Sheridan College um, in Ontario on our doorstep and they have a really um, world-renowned uh, graphic design program. So we were able to reach out to them and have an intern come and work with us over the summer months to, um, you know, translate the code into a, a, a an artistic vision, I guess. So I guess that was one thing that you would need to be aware of. And if you work in, if you're familiar with games, you probably understood that from the get-go. I didn't. <laughs> so the learning, it was a learning curve for me. Um, but yeah, we, we couldn't be happier with the, the work of that intern because he, he really was a, a creative visionary in terms of thinking about what those games those mini games could look like. So, yeah, I guess, you know, if if, if we're to summarize, really, I guess, you know, you want to get the partners on board as soon as possible, or you want to um, employ a game designer, and you want to think about the artist um, that's going to work with them. Um, But the biggest bulk of the cost for us was um, developing the code. And so, you know, like I said, if anyone wants the code, we're happy to make that freely available. All they would need to do then is fine-tune that to make it specific to their, to their local community. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Tune in next month as we look at library architecture and design coincide with the release of American Library's annual Library Design Showcase issue. Until then, if you have any questions, ideas, concerns, anything at all, you can find us on Twitter or you can shoot me an email at deweydecibel at ala.org. I promise to get back to you. Please, we want to hear from you. As always, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. <music>